Okay, gentlemen, looks like we've we've hit time. Uh, thank you. That was great. So uh, we've got some extra chairs. Feel free to pull those up. We're a little cramped in here because we got some godly women next door conducting their business. We're going to pick back up in... And thank you guys for joining us online. If you haven't hit the mute button, take opportunity to do that real quick and feel free to unmute. And uh, if you got a question or comment you want to make, especially if, if I'm not paying attention, I can't. Is one of you over in the Middle East getting fighter jets? <laughs> All right. Well, if you can manage to find the mute button, great. If, if not, if you're too busy, uh, there in the cockpit, we understand. <laughs> so we'll we'll pick up with a challenging section here. Um, I mean, has any part of First Corinthians not been challenging so far? But that's kind of the fun. Some particularly challenging verses here in chapter six. Uh, let's open with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, by the power of your word and spirit, enlighten our hearts and minds. And if your word causes us to mourn and to be terrified on account of our sin, well and good. Use it for your fatherly purposes, which are always to direct us toward our Savior, Jesus Christ. And may you, by the power of your word and spirit, also enlighten our hearts and minds to see the mystery and wonder of that which you have made, that which you have given this office of human of humanity of human nature that you have created uh, such high glory and honor that the world does not even recognize it and may, may we given eyes to see by your word uh, see the dignity that you have given to us and that you have restored to us in christ jesus our savior in his name we pray amen, amen. so again overarching view We've got the Corinthians that are described as being puffed up, arrogant, boasting, etc. This is manifesting itself in a variety of errors. One is a kind of sectarianism where, oh, I'm of the school of so-and-so. Well, I'm, I'm a little better than you. No offense. I'm of the school of such-and-such. And then this also, this arrogance manifesting in another way that they're allowing a man engaged in uh, gross sexual immorality to remain in the communion of the church. They should be excommunicating him for the sake of his soul rather than giving him this false hope and false comfort of, oh, yeah, go on sinning, grace abounds. So Paul corrects that. Next, the arrogance and high-handedness, maybe particularly of the wealthy in the Corinthian congregation. They would have the means to do this. But in dragging one another to court and in trying to lord it over one another in such a way, even, even doing this thing that St. Paul cons considers ridiculous, uh, dragging a brother in Christ before one who is unrighteous, one who is an unbeliever, as if you're going to get some kind of justice there. And in fact, it'd be better for you, St. Paul says, to just suffer the loss rather than... Uh, subject yourself to such indignities. Then we're going to see another aspect of the high-handed conduct of the Corinthians, and that is that they, uh, they seem to have adopted a great amount of, and there's different ways we could think of this, maybe in some sense Gnostic, in some sense Platonic, in a more general sense, just Greek. I suppose there's uh, like Epictetus, the Stoics, um, you might point to here. But the general idea in permeating so much of Greek philosophy at the time is that you, your, your body and your soul are two very different things. And you can do whatever you want with your body, kind of make that argument in one way, shape or form. Um, and the more you understand how high the soul is, in contrast with how low the body is, the more enlightened you are and the more free you are in regards to the things of the body. Now, that seems to be manifesting itself in some uh, outright impenitent sin and sinful lifestyles, but especially engaging in uh, temple prostitution. So in Greek culture, it is just... Um, for, for men in particular to sleep with temple prostitutes and or as sick as it is uh, young boys is just common and morally acceptable 
in uh, left-hand kingdom civil society, um, so to speak, according to the ancient Greeks, in which the Corinthian congregation exists. So we're going to see those things, those themes emerge, and we're going to see Paul's treatment of them. It's not going to be a super easy section or a super enjoyable section. There are parts of this that are meant specifically by St. Paul to, and by the Holy Spirit to not be enjoyable. <laughs> so, uh, But there are other things, there are other treasures and gems um, and presuppositions built in here that I think I think are going to enlighten you and help you and ultimately lift you up. So it is of the utmost importance right off the bat, I think, to go back to chapter 6, verse 1, just so we can understand what Paul is saying here. Chapter 6, verse 1, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous? Now, what is meant in context by the unrighteous is the unbeliever, okay? We can see that borne out at the end of this section in verse 6. But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. So you see how the unrighteous are categorically unbelievers. Now we move on to the new section at verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous, who are we talking about? Unbelievers in context. Or do you not know that the unbelievers, the unrighteous, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Like, of course, that's Christianity 101, right? Do not be deceived. Neither the, and now in this list, we're going to see, um, I think six of these Paul has mentioned before. Back in chapter five, there's going to be an additional four for a total of ten. But these are... Um, I'm using the phrase tongue-in-cheek here, vocations of the unrighteous, <laughs> career, spiritual careers of the unrighteous. Okay. So um, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, just the pornoi. Uh, this would be like fornication in all its forms nor idolaters, nor adulterers. Now, look at adulterers, uh, moikoi, which is um, referring to the breaking of the marital union. So the difference between fornication or sexual immorality in English, which is um, a, a blanket kind of uh, sexual abuse um, versus adultery, which is specifically violating a marriage. Now, what's pinned in between is idolaters. And that's probably because the the specific nature of the sexual temptations in Corinth have to do directly with idol worship and temple prostitution. Certainly not in every case. I mean, there's obviously uh, just run-of-the-mill fornication, run-of-the-mill adultery would fall under Paul's condemnation. But when you're just looking at his list and trying to do exegesis, you see idolaters stuck right in the middle there. And that's probably why. Okay, so the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, uh, nor men who practice homosexuality, which is a tame way of putting it. So the two Greek terms, and if you have an ESV Bible, um, there's a study note, which is the first thing you have to do is have an ESV Bible. The second thing you have to do is have like Superman x-ray vision. Because after men who practice homosexuality, you'll see the superscript for. And then if you go down to the microscopic print, you're uh, at the bottom of that column, you're going to see the two Greek terms translated by this phrase refer to the passive and active partners in uh, consensual homosexual acts. So that's what's condemned. So malakoi are the effeminates, the catamites. Arsenikoite are the uh, masculine, the sodomites. Okay, that's probably TMI, but it, it is what it is. So um, homosexual uh, practice here thoroughly uh, listed amongst, I mean, it is a kind of uh, fornication, but it's distinguished even here and made explicit. Okay, 10, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, 
nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And I spent some time on, I think, all these words. I mean, maybe with the exception of thieves, which is fairly self-evident, I think. Greedy. Yeah, greedy is like coveters. Drunkards is new, I think. Thieves is new. Revilers is around. That's like the railer, the one who's um, like, when I think of a reviler, I think of... uh, like our personalities on the news or social media who are just constantly stirring up and railing and reviling. Like that's their job. That's a reviler. Now the first century version of that is that's happening um, in the Agora and the marketplace at the city gate. Um, Okay. So revilers, what else do we have here? Uh, Swindlers like extortionists. So these will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the end of verse 10. So just going back to where we started, or do you not know that the unrighteous unbelievers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. None of these unrighteous, none of these unbelievers who obviously then show their unbelief in these manifest lifestyles, practices of sinning, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, now this is always a struggle, but it's worth doing. Look at verse 11, and such were some of you. Now, here's the struggle. We have to look at this as a historical document, first and foremost. Then it's kind of an amazing statement. Because the the Corinthian people, this individual group of people, are the ones Paul is talking about in the first place. He likely had firsthand knowledge that many of these who had then been converted to Christianity by him um, were sexually immoral, were idolaters, were adulterers, were men who practiced homosexuality, as well as thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, and so on and so forth. He's saying, uh, such were some of you. So, yeah, well, so there's, what what I think that that really indicates is that there's, I don't feel as though these sins, or if this is in your past, that this somehow keeps you from the kingdom of God. It does if you go on in it. It does if you go on impenitently pursuing it. It doesn't if you turn to Christ. It doesn't if you follow him as your Lord and Savior. It doesn't if you receive his forgiveness. And that gets fleshed out by St. Paul in verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed. So um, baptismal language, obviously. I mean, what's Paul talking about here? You took a bath? No. You were washed. You were sanctified. Now, we'll we'll go off on this tangent here in a minute, but this is sanctification in the wide sense. You were made holy. It's synonymous with being baptized. It's synonymous with being justified, and that's what comes next. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, which you have a sneaky Pauline trinity there because you have the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit, and the Spirit of our God. So uh, thoroughly thoroughgoing baptismal reference. Now, what happens if you were these things, then you're baptized, you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified, but you become these things again? What now? And we have, God be praised, wonderful biblical testimony of saints who did just that. The answer would be, David, who was, in Old Testament terms, washed, sanctified, justified, fell into great sins of adultery and murder, and yet was brought back. His sins were forgiven through the mouth of the prophet Nathan, sent by God. Then the prayer you want to pray is Psalm 51, which is the prayer that David prayed in which it says, create in me a clean heart, O God, renew in me a right spirit. Um, you can think also of the prodigal son. The prodigal son is a son. That is to say, he is baptized, he is sanctified, he is washed. We were not sons, but through holy baptism, God made us his sons. 
So what happens if one whom God has made a son suddenly acts as though he were a son no longer and goes out and spends uh, all his father's inheritance, his birthright on uh, prostitutes and uh, evil profligate living? Can such a one return and be forgiven? Well, of course, you know how the story goes from the lips of Jesus himself. Such a one is received back in, by the father, not as a slave, not with wrath, not with discipline, not with a program that you have to fulfill before, you know, I'll bring you back into sonship, but just simply by pure grace on account of Christ alone, wrapped in the robe of Christ's righteousness, the ring of sonship and authority back on the finger, sandals of freedom back on the feet and so on and so forth, the fattened calf the Lord's Supper, uh, slain and eaten in the great family reconciliation. Okay, so that's how we, that's how we want to look at this. Now, Paul's dealing with those, with a, this pastoral situation that they were all mucked up and mired in these things. Now they've been brought out of these and he's warning them, don't return to this. Now, if they did return, then what the, the little sermonette that I've just been giving you needs to be preached to them. And needs to, and of course needs to be preached to us, uh, particularly if we were baptized at a very young age. The answer is not to get baptized again. The answer is to return to your baptism. This is beautifully symbolized in our liturgy, by the way. It's um, it may it may strike you as awkward and good uh, that when um, at the beginning of the divine service, of course we process in with the uh, crucifix. Because the very beginning of, the, of our service is all eyes on Jesus. Indeed, that's that, that's why we're there. Because he promises where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. And we know from the scriptures, he says, I came not to be served, but to serve. And so the divine one is there to serve us. Thus, we call it the divine service. And he's there to preach his word and administer his sacraments to us. In response, we pray, praise, and give thanks. Yeah, but the primary aspect is what Jesus is doing for us. Our grateful, thankful res response, our worship is good, right, and salutary. It's a response to what he's doing. So as we begin the service, the processional cross, all eyes on Jesus, and a reminder of his promises. And we are singing our opening hymn. And then comes the confession absolution. And so the pastor will come down and stand uh, in front of the baptismal font. He'll address you, but then he'll turn when it comes time for confession and do what? Confess his own sins <laughs> right along with you. And sometimes offer intercessory prayers on behalf of the congregation behind him. It's a both hand. It's a corporate activity there. We're all one confessing our sins. And that's why we use the plural we in that confession. If you come to individual confession, it's an I. It's a corporate confession of sin. Then the pastor moves behind the baptismal font and speaks the absolution. As Luther puts it, the absolution is nothing but a return to those baptismal waters. It's being reconciled to your baptismal grace. It's being brought back into that reality and the, the recognition, the divine recognition by God that you remain his son, his beloved child for the sake of Christ. Okay, so that's, um, that's what we want to do is we want to return to that washing, return to that sanctification, return to that justification that are given us in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So far, so good? Okay. Pastor? Yes, sir. Yeah. As we are justified in an instant through Christ, are we also lost in an instant? We can be. Apart from Christ? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Is that yeah. how it works? Is that how it works? Yeah, yeah, indeed. I mean, impenitence separates from Christ. Mm -hmm. Well, that happens in one instant, then. Yes, yes. It's it's a quite binary reality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's there's just no getting around that, and that's the starkness of the warning here: is not to be engaged in in these ten things that Paul lists, 
uh, to be engaged in these 10 things that Paul lists is to have turned your back on Christ. However, so temporarily, that is in fact what you've done. So you need to return and be restored to him. But you've probably done that before you've done anything. You've done it in your heart, right? Before yeah. you've actually, it's not a gradual thing is what I'm trying to get at, I guess. Um. Yeah, I don't know how to think of that. I, I suppose it just depends from what frame or angle you're talking. Um, James will talk about <laughs> James will talk about a process. He'll talk about temptation, conceiving with the sinful will. But it takes these two, and they conceive, and then there's sin, and then sin, when it is full grown, brings death. So, from one biblical angle, I suppose you can see a kind of process that takes place, and how we should. Uh, this is the way the fathers took that psalm about dashing the infants' heads against the rocks in the context of James' uh, teaching, where you've got the conception of sin. Uh, that's the pro- that's the holy abortion or the holy infanticide is before the sin becomes full grown. Uh, stop it at any step along the way and dash its head upon the rocks before it becomes full grown, full grown and brings your death. So whether you like that exegesis or not, it's true, isn't it? <laughs> Illustrative of the reality. If we could put sin to death at the level of thought, that's what we want to do long before it comes word or deed. Um, where, you know, where we've fallen in, I think, I think there's a difference, you know, um, what if we can play, we can play these kinds of games, even though they might be somewhat dangerous, but what if no sooner than David had fallen into, uh, fornication and indeed adultery with, uh, Bathsheba, what if the second it was over, he experienced that, uh, clarity and said, what have I done? And repented. Well, it would have been a grievous sin. He would have been restored by the Lord. There may have been temporal consequences to that sin, but it but though but it would have stopped there. It wouldn't have continued down the line of David's deceits and the damage done to his soul and the damage done to the nation, uh, up into including uh, Uriah and the murder of Uriah and then the stain and spot of that upon the whole nation family. So, yeah, it's always best to nip it in the bud. Um, obviously, best to avoid it in the first place. Second, nip it in the bud. And, you know. And then, um, obviously, if it's gone down the path, then don't despair. Don't fall into despair. Um, even if it's gone down the path for a long time, don't fall into despair. Because that's what the devil wants. So um, repent, be forgiven, be restored, um, and then and then walk back down that path that you've been set upon, that path of life. Pastor, mm-hmm. and they made their repentance then, mm-hmm. or. How do you know? Or, or maybe it's not your position to know. I don't know. Yeah, well, okay, so the question for those of you online is effectively, what about deathbed repentance? When you've lived your whole life up to that moment, let's say, um, in, an, in a very unchristian way, uh, the Bible does not recommend deathbed repentance. <laughs> if for no other reason, then you don't know when your deathbed is. <laughs> Right? You fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. So, and indeed, that we see the foolishness. I mean, it's a dagger to our hearts because we should we should spend every day as if it were our last. If we were truly sanctified and holy and mature in the faith, we'd see every moment as if it were our last, and we'd live we live every interaction in the light of that impending uh, release from the from the duties of this life. So as to conduct ourselves rightly, um, the more we can, the more we can um, learn to number our days, as the psalmist says, the more we can gain a heart of wisdom. So that, yeah, not recommended, um, but but is grace such that God will receive a sinner even if he repents in the last minute? Yes, grace is such. Absolutely. Absolutely. Otherwise, it's not grace. 
um, Jesus' parable to this effect um, that I might point to would be those who are received at the 11th hour. There's nothing for them to do. <laughs> In the 11th hour, all the work is done. They basically ride along and get a paycheck. Um, uh, the thief on the cross is uh, also cited frequently. Um, whether he was baptized or not, who knows? But we do know that he begins uh, by railing against the Lord when they're first crucified. Both thieves were told explicitly, rail against the Lord, mock him, revile him. Uh, but over the course, uh, by Jesus' word and conduct, he's converted. He's converted. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. So there's a kind of deathbed conversion to very concrete. Okay, anything else on that or anything else? Take a lighter little trajectory here and um, talk about sanctification, because this is one of the verses that's used um, to cite this distinction. Sanctification used in the wide sense and in the narrow sense. So as you can see, to be washed, to be justified, um, these are absolute types of things. And uh, to be washed of your sins, to be right in God's sight, and then to be sanctified, to be set apart and made holy. This is the same wide sense with which God calls us saints in the scriptures, holy ones. And in fact, that's actually what sanctified means, made holy. And so in the wide sense, this is something God does, and it's synonymous with conversion. It's synonymous with justification. It's synonymous with baptism. It's to be made fully and completely holy. You say, well, what about the sinful nature that still adheres to me. God's not reckoning that against you. He's not even counting that against you. He doesn't even see it. You're holy in his sight. He's made you holy in his sight. And because he's God, his reality goes, right? <laughs> well, that's just like your opinion, man. Well, if it's God's opinion, <laughs> that's a little different, right? <laughs> All right. So that's uh, that's the nature of sanctified here. Now, sanctified in the narrow sense, we can find examples of this in the scriptures, but more commonly in theology, where we'll make a distinction between justification and sanctification. Justification, being right in God's sight, is entirely apart from anything that you do or anything inside of you. It's by grace, which precludes all works. It's by faith, which precludes all works. It's completely and freely the gift of God. That gift contains within it, though, an aspect that enlivens you. You were dead in your trespasses, but he makes you alive. Your ontologically, that is to say, in your very being, you're changed. You go from dead to alive. You go from not a son to a son. You go from not a temple of the Holy Spirit to a temple of the Holy Spirit. You go from darkness to light. You are a son of darkness. Now you're a son of light. That's a big deal. No one wants to deny that. Think of how many scriptures you'd have to deny. And that means that then within you is a new creature, a new man with new desires, new affections, new impulses. They're still weak on account of the flesh that clings to us, but they're there and they're there to be exercised and matured. And that's Paul's explicit teaching in Ephesians, for example, Ephesians 4. Okay, so that's sanctification over and against justification. Makes sense? So sanctification in the narrow sense. Any questions on that? Okay on that? Yeah, I bring it up chiefly because there's an abuse that's really popular right now. It'll try to convince you that there's no sanctification in the narrow sense. There's no new man and no growth or progress in the spiritual life. And they'll cite these kinds of wide sense passages and say, see, it's all or nothing. Therefore, there can be no progress. There can be no, there can be no narrow because there's a wide Bad argument. If the, and if not they, biblical. If they're using this, that wouldn't be correct. It, it says some, some, and some are, were of you. So he's saying that the case, you're no longer. Yeah, so here's they, a wide sense from yeah. darkness to light. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, they would then use to say, see, it's all or nothing. Sanctification is being a Christian or not. But that's, um, that. That's true, but we can't use that to destroy the other category, which is as a Christian, you progress along in holiness. And by the way, I mean, if you don't, if you don't believe this or believe this is Lutheran, you got to just do yourself a favor and pick up the large catechism and start going through the commandments because Luther talks about it every, everywhere in the Ten Commandments. Um, and including, uh, the, 
the our father and the creed. In fact, he, I mean, he even says that the our father is given to us so that we keep the commandments and more keep them more and more. So uh, there's, uh, I mean, Luther, if you don't believe he's, he's about narrow sanctification as well as wide sanctification and progress in the Christian life, you owe it yourself to reread that text and see if you still, maybe Luther's wrong then at that point, <laughs> then you go become something else. But you can't, you're not going to be able to use Luther as a wax nose on that point. Okay, shall we jump back in then? I wish I could say it was going to get easier, but, you know, it's just not. What's happening? Okay, so at verse 12 then, and what you'll see in your Bible, at least in the ESV and all likelihood the others, is you'll see these odd quotation marks. All things are lawful for me. Now, what Paul is doing, we know that he's quoting something. We don't know for sure if he's quoting the Corinthians and a sentiment there. Or is this a sentiment native to their congregation? Or is this a sentiment of the Corinthians that comes from broader Greek philosophy and the sort of philosophy of the world that they've imbibed? We don't really know, but we know that Paul's going to take this statement and then speak to it. So you can think about the Corinthians, all things are lawful for me. You can kind of see an antinomian trend there within Corinth, where it's, you know, hey, we're not going to discipline this guy who is sleeping with his stepmother or whatever. Um, hey, we can, we can you know, uh, engage in all kinds of sexual immorality or um, greedy, covetous, thievery, etc., drunken reviling, and still be good Christians. That would seem to all be predicated upon some kind of statement like, all things are lawful for me. Out of the mouth of a pagan, like Stoic paganism, Epictetus, I mentioned, it's this idea of like, I, I, I'm so wise and my soul is so wise and so transcendent that I understand the design of the body and that the body is um, designed for these purposes like eating and sex and so I'm going to let the body be the body, and I'm going to let my soul be my soul, and my soul as a soul is free. So all things are lawful for me would be kind of the basis of this sort of Gnostic antinomianism. Now, look what Paul, how Paul corrects that. All things are lawful for me. Then we get Paul's words, but not all things are helpful <laughs> or profitable or good. Okay, now he quotes again, all things are lawful for me. Then he says, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Yes, sir. Why doesn't he just come out bluntly and say, no, not all things are lawful? Because God does give us yeah, sure. Why doesn't he just say no? Well, I think effectively he does. I think his rhetorical impact. So Paul is, okay, in part, I mean, this is kind of what fun and what's going on in the background. Corinth is known as one of these places where the rhetoricians are gathering around. Like instead of watching the NFL, you go on a Sunday afternoon, you go watch the rhetoricians in the town square, like best each other. Okay. That's kind of what's going on here. Paul has, yeah, maybe so. Oh, that's right. They do that there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So Facebook where yeah, you see everybody kind of piling on each other, whatever. Okay. So, so Paul has in some senses decreed this, and said, I don't want to do this. I uh, decried this, I mean. And he's saying, I don't want to. Uh, I'm not going to do this. But in, here and there, he uses rhetoric. Remember his bitterly sarcastic place where he's like, oh, you reign, you're rich, you're full. You're doing it all without us. <laughs> what that you really did. So he's engaged in all these rhetorical devices. And I think the s simple answer is he's just going to engage them on their own rhetoric. Um, he more or less does come out bluntly and say it, I think. Uh, but anyway, long in the short is here he says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. He's actually pointing out a rather profound paradox here that if you think on this verse and you think of the dynamics a little more deeply, you'll come to. And that's the idea that um, all things are lawful, all things are permissible. Okay? Isn't the freedom you think it is? It's actually a slavery to self. That's the, that's the reformers claim and statement that at the essence of original sin 
is the incurvatus in se, the self curved in on itself. So precisely the bondage of the will that Luther will talk about isn't like, oh, I want to be good, but my will's bound to do evil. That's not the bondage of the will. The bondage of the will is what you want to do is evil. And an easy way to understand is what you want to do is what you want to do. And in and in this reality, you're bound to yourself, and yourself happens to be contrary to God. That's the bondage of the will. Okay. It's analogous to like, what can a lizard do? Well, a lizard has a very limited set of activities that it can do. It can like run into its hole, bite, or sit there. Okay. And similarly, what can a sinner do? This self-serving thing, that self-serving thing, or the other self-serving thing. But just like a lizard's never going to transcend its lizardness, a sinner's never going to transcend its sinnerness. Both are bound by virtue of their natures. And God does not create man to be bound by his sinful nature, but to be freed into the nature of God, to even act against self. That's the freedom of the gospel. That's the freedom of the will that Christ gives. Okay, so all things are lawful for me. I'm totally free. That, in fact, is a kind of slavery versus the opposite is I'm going to bound my, bind myself to God, which appears to our sinful nature to be a kind of slavery is actually freedom. Because when you bind yourself to God, you're no longer limited to the lizardness or the sinfulness, the selfishness. But all of a sudden, your horizons are infinitely greater. Because God says, why don't you do this, that, or the other thing that's completely outside of your self-interest? Your horizons are infinitely greater as God is infinitely greater. Okay, was somebody trying to get a word in edgewise? Yes. I just, this all things are lawful for me. It just sounds like just modern day secularism. Yeah, doesn't it? Nothing's still I know, I know. Okay, because so it's funny. It's not just like Greek philosophy. It's just... Yeah, I mean, arguably it's depraved Western philosophy. Mm-hmm. This kind of lawlessness, hedonism. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So all things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Now he's quotes them again. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food or stomach for food. Then his comment is, and God will be destroy both one and the other. <laughs> so what this is probably getting at, especially because of where Paul pivots next, which is right into sexual immorality, is the full saying is probably something like food is meant for the stomach and stomach is meant for food. The body is meant for sex and sex for the stomach. That's pro- That or something like it is probably what follows up next. And again, it's this idea of if you're if you're a Greek and you know you don't have social media and so you can actually spend your time thinking, you just start looking at your body, right? And you start going, okay, there's a design here. It's designed for food, and my body is designed for food. What's the organ below my belly that has a design too? And so you're you're recognizing a, a natural design, and you're going to use these things according to design. And all of this has a way of heightening and puffing up your ego, your soul, your sense of I'm detached from these things because I'm an observer of these things. I'm an understander of these things. So if, um, you know, you might even sort of see a kind of uh, leveraging of the, the change in dietary laws from the old to the new of like, oh, okay, so the dietary laws are gone. You can eat any food. Well, maybe the sexual laws are gone too. You can have any sexual experience. That might be an extreme version of what's going on, but it's that kind of dynamic at play, which is why Paul immediately goes to God destroying both one and the other, then immediately pivots within verse 13 to the body is not meant for sexual immorality. And here's the beginning of the really beautiful part that, again, if we can see through an okay, if we can receive the correction of scriptures upon ourselves and upon our culture. And then see past that to what's going on underneath the surface. This is where it's really amazing. And there's a lot to gain and learn positively from this section. So the body is not meant for sexual immorality. You might expect him to say, but for marriage. 
Now, he'll kind of get there, but it is important to see where he pivots. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. That's the first really positive, contemplative thing that he says. What on earth does that mean? 14, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Now, I think that helps us see that part of the mystery here is the mystery of the incarnation. That God takes on human flesh, and now we share one flesh with him. And more than that, even after his flesh was laid into the tomb, his flesh was raised up, and our flesh will also be raised up with The immediate connection of the Lord um, to the body our bodies with his body, and um, thus our oneness with him and our participation um, via our flesh with with him via his enfleshment. And the same could be said parallelly with, uh, in a parallel way, I mean, with the um, resurrection. So he goes on to just continue, I think he continues this point in 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? effectively members of his body. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a porne, of a prostitute? Uh, Never may it be, or in the ESV, just never. Never may it be. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. For it is written, the two will become one flesh. So what's going on here is the reality of marriage, the two becoming one flesh, back in Genesis, Adam and Eve becoming one flesh. Um, remember, they're, they're at first uh, the woman is taken from the man, from his rib, from his side. So now there's two. And then the two are returned in marriage to one flesh. And that one flesh reality obviously shows forth in children. The literal one flesh union of a man and a woman. Now, that union is is marriage and is um, essentially marriage. When it's used with a prostitute, it doesn't constitute marriage. It it constitutes um, a great denigration of marriage and a a great... um, defilement of marriage so as uh you might say maybe as as christ is to the antichrist so the one flesh union of marriage is to a one flesh union with a prostitute they're they're diametrically opposite okay so um The two will become one flesh. Then 17, we get our next really fascinating positive statement. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So I I, I think you can't help but view this in contrast. The more you look look at the contrast, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined with the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So this is a... uh, This is a higher admixture than marriage, that relationship we have with the Lord. Um, It's never said of husband and wife that they become one spirit. Their union is fleshly, they become one flesh. But it is here said of the Lord that we become one spirit with him. So the body, strictly speaking, and at least in the way Paul's thinking right here, the body isn't meant even for like a godly spouse per se, it's meant for the Lord. And the spirit very clearly is not meant for the godly spouse per se, but becomes one spirit with the Lord. So some fascinating things to take in here and a very different way. I mean, you all, many of you heard me talk on Sunday, so that's where I'm getting a lot of this stuff. Um, because this is very informative to how we view marriage and how we make sure we don't view marriage idolatrously. 
but very, very positive things. So I think the, just to zoom all the way out, the rhetoric is clear, I hope, that if your body is not yours, but belongs to Christ and you go, it's like, it's like, could you take a member of the body of Christ? Could you take the body of Christ into a prostitute? Of course you couldn't. It'd be unthinkable. Take the body of Christ and do any of those other manifest wicked things that were listed. It's, it's unthinkable. Something. So, um, if you have done that, it affects not just you, but the whole church and Christ and the whole message of Christ. Okay. So it's a big deal. And there's a, there's a weightiness there that Paul gives to the sin and to the consequences of that sin. Um, we ought to receive that weightiness primarily as a warning not to fall into such things. And if we have fallen in such things, is there forgiveness with Christ? Yes, there's forgiveness with Christ. Again, to return to one's baptism, to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And it, you can see why such a serious sin against God, against church, against self, uh, would require the very blood of God. You know, the cross only seems absurd if you don't really understand the essence of our sin. You understand that horrific essence and nature of our sin. It's just unthinkable. It's just unspeakable. We are very rarely sensitive enough uh, to see our sin as it is. When we do, then we see why it requires nothing less than the blood of God poured out for us for that forgiveness. We, we see why the New Testament itself is not just Christ shedding his blood, but his blood in the chalice put to your lips and to mine. And how nothing less could cleanse us. I mean, this where it's just absurd. Like, how many monastery floors are you going to scrub to undo your sins? Like, uh, what good works are you going to do to try to? It's just ridiculous. There, there is nothing that can holy that which is so unholy, save for one thing: the very blood of God, that that holiest of all holy things, and that's precisely what He gives to us. So. You can see why the Lord's Supper is not some tangential thing. It's at the beating heart of Christianity. It's the, it's the beating heart of our interface with Christ. And as we recognize the sins that we've done in the body, um, we recognize the only healing we have comes from him. Okay, so we've got these beautiful statements that, the, that our bodies are made for the Lord and um, also are this oneness of spirit with the Lord. So then 18 flee from sexual immorality. And of course, it's a, it's a blanket statement, but in context, he's talking specifically to this kind of prostitution they're trying to justify with their Greek philosophy. Flee from sexual immorality. Here's, here's like super hard verse. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Um, obviously like drunkenness and gluttony, these kinds of sins affect the body. Um, murder is using your body. I mean, think of Paul's rhetoric. Murder is using the body of Christ to murder someone else, right? Um, so it certainly injures another's body, but probably what's at root here, the closest I can come to it is again, the one flesh nature. Uh, has a profound mystery and reality within it that's uniquely damaging in such a way that alcohol and food and even using your body to hurt someone else isn't. It's not uniquely damaging. You're not becoming one flesh with another person. That's and a person who's not your spouse or something like that. So you are, and in this particular case, though, a prostitute and maybe even a temple prostitute. That's uniquely damaging. And I think that that's what Paul's saying. That's the closest I can get. It's a really thorny verse, and there's a ton of ink spilled on it. Obviously, and then nineteen, we get to another beautiful positive statement. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? So restated from chapter three seventeen, and a recurring theme for for Paul, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, notice this. It's not It's not just your soul is a temple for the Holy Spirit. It's your physical body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit indwells you and you are his temple. And the you, of course, is both individual and collective. 
and you have the Holy Spirit from God. So again, just the statement of God's grace that he sends the Holy Spirit. As as David cries, you know, take not thy Holy Spirit away from me. It's God's prerogative to give or to take. It's not something we can earn or merit or like, you know, manipulate God into doing. It's a free gift that he gives and it can equally be removed. So your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. And then I, I think this is beautiful language. Ultimately, you are not your own has a moral edge to it. Like you can't just go do with yourself whatever you want to because you're not even your own. But I also think it has a, a beautiful um, uh, like ontic edge to it. That is to say, um, you are not your own. You belong to Christ and uh, and the Holy Spirit, obviously but you belong to Christ. He has bought you at a price. So I think what, what Paul is really doing ultimately here is, yeah, there's a moral warning, but there's also a reminder of the gospel. I mean, you were bought at a price means not only don't go squander that, but also recognize that he has paid in full and that you belong to him. Sins of, sins of past are paid for. You've been bought with a price. So then what do you do with your body? Glorify God in your body. Okay, so I think some really beautiful positive statements. Um, as we're, I guess we've got nine minutes. The ladies are closing up early tonight. So um, we, he does now transition into marriage, which is where you'd expect him to go right from the get-go. Like, hey, don't do prostitutes. Um, have a wife or a husband, right? Uh, instead, he puts all this stuff about the Lord, and I think that's and about the temple and about our relationship to Jesus. I think that's super important because I think that that rightly structures marriage. That um, marriage in this life is a is a great gift and blessing from God, and is meant to, um, among other things, keep us from sexual immorality and keep us from prostitutes. Uh, but it's not this end-all, be-all that Hollywood and Disney make it out to be. The end-all, be-all is our union with the Lord. It's, in fact, his gift that that he gives a spouse, but he still remains the giver, and he still remains the one for whom we were made. He's the one that uh, fulfills us, completes us, satisfies us, etc. We were made for him. Okay, so... Chapter 7, 1, you can see where it's kind of an artificial break because it just his argument carries on. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, and here's one of them. You can see the quotations emerge again. It is good for a man to not have sexual relations with a woman. Okay, And he's going to agree with that, but only under certain conditions. But because of... Why did I cross that out? Because of the temptation to sexual immorality. Probably because it just says because of sexual immorality. The temptation is probably not in the original. But because of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So Paul clearly acknowledging both sexes here and that, you know, both sexes are subject to the kind of porneira he's just spoken of and all other kinds. This is very interesting language. Maybe I'll talk more about it next week. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights is not great because it just flat out says ophelane, which is like duty or debts. And apodidato, to fulfill or give back. So the husband should give to his wife. Um, the husband should perform unto his wife uh, his duty. And likewise, the wife to her husband. The language of duty is so much better in all of marriage. Have you ever noticed that it's, it's, not, the, um, it's not the table of rights in the catechism? It's the table of duties. We hate the language of duty because we've been ruined by romanticism and because, especially as males, we've been taught that like the white knight and the romantic and the guy riding around chivalrous and attractive and all these things like this is the ideal male and this is what it means to be the ideal husband is to be all of these things. And it's just flat biblically not true. 
I mean, at best, that stuff's icing on the cake. At worst, it's a complete idolatrous replacement for what a real husband and a real man is supposed to be. Not saying you can't be like chivalrous and kind, that kind of stuff. If, if you, I suppose if you aren't those things to a degree, well, you'll never have the problem of marriage. But, <laughs> uh, but the point being, don't mistake those things for what, for what vocation, vocatia really is, because it's just so unsexy. It's just so unromantic as duty. Like, like you get up to heaven. It's like, it's like the spouse that goes, well, I didn't feel like having sex with my husband or wife because the shoe fits both ways on this one. Um, the answer of God is like, since we did feelings have anything to do with it. And that, that runs true through all the uh, vocations. Doesn't like, I didn't feel like being a dad that day. I didn't feel like disciplining my child. You have a duty. <laughs> you have a duty to your children. Your children have a duty to you. You have a duty to your wife and your wife has a duty to you. Um, and, and masters have a duty to their slaves and slaves to their masters or employers, employees, as we have it. But all the more, it's it's easier to just say slaves, isn't it? So duty is the is the biblical language, and it's what we want to return to because it it disregards all the feelings, and it disregards all the sappy romanticism, and it disregards all the well, I'll sleep with you if you do X, Y, and Z, and X, I did X, Y, and Z. Oh, I meant also x1 y1 and z1 and so on ad nauseum right it's just no you have a duty to do this is your duty do it do your duty unto god in this case it's very specific and narrow to the marital uh, union um but it really is thorough going through all the vocations so the table of duties and the biblical language of duty we need to get it back because it's the only way to recover this from the hellish quagmire it's fallen into the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, or he should fulfill his duty, and likewise the wife to her husband. Verse 4, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. This is a little surprising, this next line, but it's great. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, I think it is it is worth specifying here that the context is sexual, not general. So otherwise, I think if you take take this too broadly, it subverts male headship and subverts other very clear statements that Paul says about the wife being in submission to the husband. So I think this is specific to the sexual union. Um, the authority of the body here is like, hey, that's my body. Either partner could say that. Now, obviously, we don't need to be, you know, be cavemen here. I hope I don't have to say that. But, yeah, just Christian people, this is what we see. Verse 5, do not deprive. Yeah, it's so much better than deprive. Aposterite, defraud. Because it's a duty. So you're defrauding. Luther viewed it like this. Luther, um, Luther. Uh, I mean, of course, Luther says wild things. So take it with a grain of salt. But Luther, in some place, talks about the uh, death sentence for a woman who won't sleep with her husband because she's defrauded him and handed him over to, uh, handed him over to Satan, handed him over to uh, prostitutes. So it's, um, it's defrauding. It's uh, murder. It's, he just goes on and on. Um, but yeah, this is, I mean, this is a sad reality uh, with some of the, uh, the so-called sexual autonomy and the me too, and all of this stuff going on. Um, uh, consent. I mean, the idea that like consent establishes morale, consent alone establishes morality is like one of just the biggest satanic lies. Um, but that lie it, it festers in and gets its stink everywhere. Um, you know, we shouldn't think in terms of like, if, if my wife wants me to perform my duty, I shouldn't be like, well, am I consenting or not? It's already a duty. I've, I, I forewent consent when I said I do. All right. And anything more than like, no, I'm, I'm like genuinely ill or let's agree to wait for a time, as Paul will specify, is, is defrauding your spouse. So, um, the church, the church back, of course. Yeah. I don't know. This is, this is systemic. We don't have time to talk about this tonight. We'll talk about it. Maybe, maybe we'll talk about it next time because it's systemic in our, in our system. As, as you, if you're married, you well know this, that, um, the, the man may choose, um, to pull the trigger with marriage. 
but the woman chooses the sexuality from that time forward. And if you don't like it, the government will happily replace you by taking half your stuff and giving it to her while she sleeps with whomever she wants. So this is a systemic issue um, and a systemic problem. And we should probably address it as such next week since we're out of time. Yeah. All right. That's it. The complaints. We'll have to wait till after the class. Let's close with the uh, let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.